The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We're going to go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be picking up there in just a moment, Mark chapter 2. This evening we're going to be examining basically the context as I see it, and I've adjusted my opinion of it the last few weeks, and I'll admit that. But basically going from verse 23 of chapter 2 through chapter 3 and verse 6. So we're actually covering a chapter division in the middle of this. And uh, I've tied that together for a pretty good reason. I think we'll be able to express as we get farther into it. But the whole context, really, and much of what Jesus had to battle with during this period of time, which really began in chapter 2 and goes through this point here in chapter 3, is a lot of it is concerning Jesus having to defend different people. Whether he's defending himself and what he does, he does that often, albeit he doesn't do it as often as he does others. He's defended even the publicans in the preceding chapter, the last section at least of chapter uh, 1, as we got into it at the beginning of chapter 2. He's had to defend his own people, that is his own disciples at times, for the experiences that they have had and for the things that they have done, which does include the section we're in tonight. And Jesus making that profound statement here in our section of verse 28, I should say, of this chapter, chapter 2 and verse 28, Therefore the Son of Man, that is Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. And so that's the argument that he puts forth throughout this. But at this point, again, his people, his disciples are being attacked for their actions, basically. And so Jesus is going to kind of more or less take up for them, but not really take up for them as much as he's really just putting a charge toward those Pharisees and that whole mindset, the whole Jewish hierarchy, that leadership, but particularly here the Pharisees, their attitude toward other people. Now, I think this ties actually back very well with our preceding two, maybe even three weeks it took to get through the last section uh, prior to this, and that was talking about fasting. Uh, not within the fasting itself, but if you remember the arguments that Jesus put forth considering the fasting, and I kind of divided those up into three areas. I talked about the, the wardrobe, the wineskins, as well as the wedding. I skipped the wedding as the first one there. So the wedding, the wardrobe, and the wineskins. Uh, but those last two arguments that we kind of had to skim over for time's sake, and I'm not trying to express all that I want to say about that right now. But those last two arguments there that began in verse 22 of chapter uh, 2 says this, And no man putteth forth new wine into old bottles, or else a new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine be spilled, and the bottles be marred. But the new wine must be put into new bottles. He also said in the preceding verse of that, verse 21, a similar argument, And also he soweth a piece of new cloth in an old garment, or else a new piece be filled, and it take away from the old, and the rent it is made worse. And so what he's kind of expressing here in verse 21 and 22 that leads directly into our context is that men have to be very cautious, particularly in Jesus' day, have to be extremely cautious about what they take from the old law and try to apply going forward into the new. Now, under which, uh, if you will, law did Jesus live under when he made those statements? He lived under the old law, so did all men at that time. And so the new law having not yet been established because he had not died, he understood that, but the new law was coming. And the one that was going to be the head of the law in that case, whether it be the law that God gave to Moses, now it's the law of whom? Christ. And so there's a change there. Not a change as far as God goes, but a change there in perspective and the way that those laws were to be followed. 
And so what Jesus expresses here in verse 21 and 22 that lead into verse 23 is the fact that you've got to be careful trying to mix the two. Whether it's taking an old wine bottle and trying to uh, turn around and put new wine in it or taking an old piece of cloth and trying to put a patchwork of a new piece of cloth in it, one being shrunk and one uh, not shrunk, that sort of thing. There's a, a destruction that comes about with that. And so what he's going to have to address ultimately with the Pharisees, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 2 through chapter 3 and verse 6, is the fact that they've got to be cautious about how they use the old law and how they're going to apply that old law going forward. Now again, they're living under to this point, so they're not out and out wrong in the fact that they're trying to at least look to the old law for their guidance. They should be doing that. But the way that they use that law going forward, they have to be cautious with it. And so when we talked about fasting a little bit, I tried to express the point that fasting came down to a liberty that came up against their loyalty. And so what they had to question and whether or not they would choose to fast at that point, save it be for the day of the atonement, which was that one time where it was commanded to fast, is that they had to be careful that their liberty was tied directly to their loyalty and not just a matter of tradition. Now if you tie that forward to verse 23 and forward, I would probably add to that equation that liberty has to meet loyalty, but loyalty has to meet love. And that is what is void in, the men's, in these uh, pharisaical, these men's mind is the idea of love and being willing to apply that to someone even in a, a matter of desperation. So let's read the context to begin with. Again, 23, we'll just read down to 28 for now and then we'll tie it into chapter 3 when we get farther into this. But here's what it says, King James translation tonight. And it came to pass that when he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day and his disciples began as went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day, and that's the key of this, it's Sabbath day, why do they on the Sabbath day do that which is not lawful? Now if you mark in your Bibles, I would under, underline that phrase, it is not lawful. At least that's what they say about it. And he said unto them, Have you not read what, what David did when he was in need and hungered and hungered? And he that were with him, how that when they were in the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, that they did eat the showbread, which was not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, that is in conclusion to what has been previously said. He said, Therefore, the Son of Man, again a reference toward him, is the Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, what, is one of the, what are one of the things, I don't expect you'll guess this, I'll try to lead you into it, but what are one of the things that Jesus had constantly attempted at least and put forth effort to establish concerning himself? Who was in charge in every situation? He was. And so he's been going through, whether it be with his words that he spoke or the works that he did, he's been setting forth to establish his authority in all things. I think it's great that that's all that Cohen talked about in the last 15 or so minutes, right? He talked about the authority of Jesus Christ and how supreme that authority is and how it even puts himself to where he's seated on the right hand of God. And so he establishes his authority here with these people once again 
in the fact that by him making that statement, I'm kind of giving a, a little insight in this for the future, in that he made that statement that I, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. He makes himself directly equal with God, not only in authority, but if you want to put this beside it, but also in time. Now what's so different about God as opposed to every other created thing ever in the universe? His eternality. The lack of a beginning nor an ending. And Jesus places himself right with that in this passage. He had no beginning or end because of him being God himself. And so looking at some of these phrases that, that go through with this, first of all, it says in verse 23, reread that, and it came to pass that when he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, his disciples began, and as they went through to pluck the ears of corn. By the way, I didn't give you your parallel passages. We've got this one here that really exists inside of Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. I'm adding through chapter 6 for a purpose but really exist in that. You can also find a parallel account, which is very detailed, by the way, over in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. I've extended that context as well to, to take into this physical miracle that he does. You can also find a very similar account with even more detail in it, some, at least some change details in it, over in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. So again, that's Matthew 12, 1 to 14 and Luke 6, 1 to 12 are your parallel accounts in this. Mark being the most brief of those. Uh, but what he states here, it, it tells us that as they were passing through the cornfields. Now, when you think about cornfields, we're really more speaking of what? Not necessarily physical ears of corn, but probably what? The grain fields. The corn fields, the grain fields, all being one and the same in that. So they're passing through these things, and typically in that day, and you can probably see this in the majority of fields even today, if there are larger plots of land, they actually had divisions in those cornfields. They had walkways, they had pathways upon which men could travel. Of course, if you're thinking about just making up an example of this, if you've got someone who owns a mile's worth of property, at some point during that mile's worth of property, there's more likely going to be what? There's going to be some way to cut through it. That may not be a physical road that's been built by the state or, or whatever like that. It may not be that organized, but there may be a break in the fence. There may be a way to pass through. And in these days, it seems that there were distinct pathways that were often traveled. Now, whether those were outset and intended or whatever, that they were oftentimes there. And so his disciples are simply moving from one place to another. Now, we've always, always noticed already, all the way from the very beginning of Mark, how that Mark went immediately from one place to another to another. And so a little bit of times, not all the time, but a little bit of those times when you look at the parallel accounts, you can get a, various, a little bit different chronology, a little bit different time frame, and you can see a little bit more detail about exactly where he had been and where he went. In this particular case, however, and whether you're reading in Matthew's account, Mark's account, or Luke's account, all three having these parallels, the exact same things are happening. Meaning by that he's going from healing a leper, to speaking on fasting, to moving through these cornfields, to healing a man with a withered hand. It all lines up nearby perfectly throughout those accounts. And so we read here that they're passing through these corn or these grain fields. They're coming from one place to another. It's just a matter of travel, and it happened to be on the Sabbath day. Now, what do we know just off the top of our heads about the Sabbath day 
and some of the things that they were supposed to be doing, or I should say not doing on the Sabbath day. Traveling was, was one of those. What were others? A, a certain amount of paces we'll get to. What else? No labor is a big one. There's one more that applies itself really strongly in this context. Labor is a big one. Travel is a big one. And the third one is this. Cooking is one. They don't seem to do that right here, but it is one of those. Pluck, particularly harvesting. Okay. So when Jesus gets pinned up and his disciples are pinned up by the Pharisees, they come at them, whether they name them out in, in, or, um, uh, specifically or not, they're coming at them with at least three attacks, all of which come under one umbrella. First attack is why are they even traveling? They should not be moving this far from place to place. Second attack that comes upon them that we just mentioned is why in the world are they, are they plucking, are they harvesting grain? They shouldn't be doing that on this day. Why are they not resting? Why are they not? And, and they're really coming at them with all these attacks on Jesus to try to question his disciples in order to get at whom? To get at him. No. They ask the questions of him. Now, the practical application of that comes down is what? That any attack that we take today from anyone that's supposedly directed at us concerning our faith is really directed toward Jesus, toward God. Okay, so that's, that's, a, that's a, a comforting thought in one mindset that we are not, even though we, the people may believe they're personally attacking us, if they're attacking our faith, they're attacking our Lord. And that's one of the things the Apostle Paul didn't necessarily understand, did he? What was Jesus' statement when he approached the Apostle Paul, or Saul called then, when he approached him on the road to Damascus? What did he say to him? We can probably all quote the King James in this one. Why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, the ox goes. And so Paul didn't necessarily understand that. You know, Paul probably thought of himself as, as what he actually was doing was persecuting Christians, trying to put them down. But he was essentially going against the Son of God. And so they come to Jesus and they, they see his disciples and he walking through these cornfields, plucking these ears of corns. And the Pharisees, verse 24, said to him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful to do? Now again, those things are included in that. One of them being travel, one of them being harvesting, one of them in, in some senses being eating, cooking a meal, fixing a meal, preparing a meal. Why are they doing these things? The attack is on our Lord. And so just some of the details in the background of this, let's take for just a moment, let's go back and kind of review what some of the standards were. Go with me to begin with Deuteronomy chapter uh, 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23. This is among some of the attacks that comes forth. But Deuteronomy chapter 23. Look with me, if you will, when you get there, if I get there. Look with me, if you will, back into verse 24. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 24. Now here's what the law said. Here's what the law considered. And this is kind of where they actually fall in this case. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 24 beginning. And when thou comest into thy neighbor's vineyard, 
Then thou mayest eat grapes, thy fill of thine own pleasure, but thou shalt not put any in thy vessel. So they're supposed to be eating just what they need in the moment. And when thou comest into a standing corn of thy neighbor, then thou mayest pluck ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move the sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. Now that's a part of the old law, and certainly these Pharisees should have been aware of that. Now does that negate exactly what happens? No, because that's not even the argument Jesus makes. When Jesus comes back to them, He doesn't say, hey, you guys need to keep in mind what is stated in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 24, and 25. And that's the way we would express it. Of course, it wasn't even laying out that way yet. But that's a principle that applies. They had the ability, and it was oftentimes set aside in cornfields, grain fields, vineyards, what have you, that there was a set-aside amount that could be gleaned, harvested in some senses, for strangers or those who are passing by to eat. What, yes, there are. There are restrictions on it, and that is they were supposed to be eat, eating to fulfill what? That temporary current hunger. You know, you can imagine, and, and of course, I, I'm not implying that we ought to do this, but if you were just passing through someone's, uh, this would have been something when I was a kid, it's more, more now than even, but if you were passing through someone's yard and there was an apple laying on the ground, you pick that apple up and as you walk on through eating it, they happen to be on the porch to see you, they may not have a problem with that. May not. You know, we've got some rough people in our neighborhoods. We're, we're a small town, but we're not always... Uh, but what if you've got a bucket? You know, you show up in anybody's yard or their garden and you just say, hey, I'm just passing through, just got hungry, and, and they've got bags hanging off or buckets on each other. No. You go through the cornfields. These would have been grain fields. You grab that sickle. I would probably call it more of a sling blade or, or a machete, and you start chopping down all their grain and packing it away. No. That, that wasn't allowed. Is that what Jesus' disciples did, though? No, they took a common liberty. They took something that was expected. You remember in the book of Ruth, what Ruth ultimately did for her mother-in-law, family, if you will? What was she allowed to do? Go into the fields of Boaz and glean from that. Now, Boaz gave her some liberty in that, and he finally approached her, probably because he adored her, but he finally approached her and he said, look, you just come in here and get all that you can use. But she was living under the Levitical law, if you will, living in this case under that law, and as she was going about doing such, she was gleaning from those fields, and it was expected that that would take place. So we have here Jesus' disciples, back in our context now, we have Jesus' disciples, they're passing through, they're plucking ears of corn, they're taking advantage, if you will, at least at that point, they're taking advantage only of that which they could use. Matter of fact, we read a little bit further down in this, as Jesus is illustrating with David, that David at least was hungered when he did this. One of the other gospel accounts, I don't remember if it's Matthew or Luke, actually speaks of his own disciples and he, that they were hungered when they were doing this. So this is not a matter of someone trying to steal or trying to uh, be a thief from anyone. This is simply a matter of them fulfilling an absolute need that they had. So Jim, were the Pharisees off base by even criticizing about what they were doing as far as plucking the corn? I would say, I would say yes, ultimately because of their attitude about it, though. 
not so much as the fact that they plucked it. Because what their statement is, why are they doing which is that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, what was not lawful? Potentially, we're about to come back to it, their travel. Potentially, their harvest. Yes, they had that ability. They had that liberty. Uh, according to what we're about to hear. You could eat. And, and the preparation would, would more or less to have been made earlier than that. Now, one of the, uh, one of the other accounts, again, I, sh I should have just jotted things down, but this is what I got right here. Um, one of the other accounts actually illustrates the fact they were grabbing these grains and rubbing them between their fingers. So all they're really doing is just breaking the chaff off of it and eating that. So there is some liberty that they could have taken to gather this, just this food for this time. But they said it is not lawful. Now let's look at another context. Go back with me to the book of Leviticus now. We just looked in Deuteronomy. Go to Leviticus chapter 19. This time, so just right there near where we were. Leviticus chapter 19. And look with me in verse... Let me see. I tried to jot that down. I don't know if I did or not. Yeah, verse 9 beginning. Leviticus 19 and verse 9. This is a little bit more about that potential harvest... And when you reap a harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of the field. Why is that? Neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of the harvest, and then thou shalt glean the vineyard. Neither shalt thou gather every grape of the vineyard, but thou shalt leave them for a... What's that phrase right there if you got to it? Poor stranger, for I am the Lord your God. What's the implication there? Well, God's commanding them to do this to leave that liberty available though that, so that these men could actually reap to a point at least some of those things. But they said this is not lawful. That's what they said. Now I would go ahead and mark out in my minds, if not in my margin, I would mark out right here that it is not lawful as we're going to see according to their opinion of the law. Their traditions of the law. Exactly. Including their interpretation, as we keep saying, that which commands, uh, recommends to this, that of travel and that of harvest and that of eating. They had applied that farther than it needed to go. Let me give you a few examples. You've probably heard uh, most of these or some of these at least. You may have heard that under the Pharisaical law, which was the Levitical law on steroids, if you will, wrongly done, but under the Pharisaical law, it was said that a man could not tie a knot even on the Sabbath. For example, he brings his animal up. He wants to put him on a post outside of a house. He can't even tie a knot for that animal to be held unless he did it how? You've probably heard this. One-handed. You can't do it with two because they determined that. They were sure that that wasn't right. Other things as you might have heard and come across as well is this one, that if they tore their clothing... Now, you know, their garments in that day, for the most part, this doesn't apply to everyone, but the garments in that day would have consisted mostly of an inner garment and an outer garment. 
And most men in that day, especially traveling-wise, may not have had anything save what they had on their backs. But he said to the Pharisees that if they tore their garment, and you can imagine some of the places they would go through, some of the crevices, some of the uh, ups and downs of the mountains and the thorns and all that were there. You know, the thorns that they placed on Jesus' head were not rare in that part of the world. But if they tore their garment, they could sew it up so long as they could do it with one stitch. It's just one stitch. I guess you had to be real careful how that was done. Another thing that I've read across and seen in this, you've probably seen this as well, uh, they could write a letter so long as it was just one. You know, you couldn't even write, you couldn't write your mother's name on the Sabbath. According to them, unless her name was B, I guess, and it's just the letter B. It was said by them also, uh, as far as, and this comes down to a few different things, but as far as if they found someone who was injured, this included animals as well, by the way, but they found someone who was injured on the side of the road, unless that person was li had a life-threatening illness, they couldn't help them. They couldn't assist them. Now, if they were dying, you could supposedly do something under their law, pharisaical law, but they couldn't necessarily help one. So if someone stumbled and broke their leg according to the way they interpreted the law, what do you do with that? Take care of yourself. We'll see you in the morning. You know, we kind of get treated that way nowadays, don't we, for a lot of doctor's offices. You got, sorry that happened today. We'll be open Monday at 9 o'clock, you know. But they couldn't do anything with that. They couldn't pull animals out of the ditch. They just, there were so many things that they could not do because of the interpretation of the Pharisees of what really was the law. And so they come to Jesus and says, the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day do that which is not lawful? They've harvested supposedly. They've worked supposedly. They've traveled supposedly. And by the way, uh, their standard as far as travel goes, you've heard it said of the Sabbath day's journey. Someone mentioned that a little bit earlier. That was consistent of less than about 2,000 steps. So if you could go, I guess, to 1,999, you were good, but that 2,000th step was in violation. Now, how, how long is a step? Anyone can do quick enough math. How long is a step? About two foot? I mean, I guess you get a good stride and you get a yard out of it if you're intentional. You don't get to go far. You wouldn't necessarily get to travel. That intentional thing. But Jesus and the disciples are passing. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not even trying to claim whether or not they had passed that particular threshold or whatever because they're caught in these fields. I don't know if they took 20 steps into the field and, and got some of the gleanings. That would have most likely been around the edges anyway as they're walking through, or at least near the edges, maybe a path through the middle. But they accused them of such. They're doing that which is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus starts, begins with his answer here. They've expressed their concern. Jesus gives his answer to begin with in verse 25. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Have you not read? Now, how do you think that strikes a Pharisee? I'd say it hits them on one cheek, and as soon as that one turns, they better be ready to follow the command and turn the other, because it's coming back. He looks at these men who would have been considered and especially considered themselves to be experts in the law, that is the Torah, as you might call it, the Pentateuch, 
the laws of God, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but particularly Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He looks at these men and says, have you not even read? Now, what he specifically comes at them with, we find this, have you not read, he says, that David, when he was in need, and I think that's the key word, I didn't underline it, but I need to go back and do that. When he had need and was hungered, he said that they, and they that were with him, they went in the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread, here's the key phrase again, which was not lawful to eat, but for the priest. And he gave it to them that were with him. Now, where do we find these type of accounts? Let's go to the first one here. It's the main one, as a matter of fact. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. He does. No, because and we're about to get into that because they lifted David up as high as God nearly. In the eyes of the Jews, David was their king. He was their ultimate king. He was the one that they were satisfied with at least. He was the leader for so long as he was. And they gave great respect. They almost hollowed the ground upon which David walked, as we would say, worshiped the ground of him. But in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, which they would have been aware of because they knew of the law, they knew of the prophets, these were supposedly experts in all those things. They definitely knew this, which is Jewish history or Hebrew history. We find this particular account. And then came David, I'm in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, verse 1. And then came David the Nob to Abimelech the priest. And Abimelech was afraid of meeting with David. And he said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said unto Abimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of thy business whereabout I sent thee. And what I have commanded thee, I have appointed my servants such and such a place, and therefore that is under thine hand. Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or what there is present. Now, let's pause for just a moment, because I don't know if you've caught this yet, but in verse 1 twice, and also in verse 2, that's the number 2, not this, in verse 2 once, who is mentioned there? They came unto Ahimelech. I don't want to shake your faith, but there may be a Bible contradiction right here. Does that sound right? What do we say to that? Before you even figure it out, do this. No, sir. No, there can't be. First of all, there are no Bible contradictions. There are oftentimes contradictions in men's minds. No question about that. There are places where we misunderstand, we misapply, you know, different things. There, there are sometimes even scribal errors sometimes. Whereas things were being copied over and over and over, there's something lost in that. Uh, you want me to transcribe something for you, you better get ready for that. I, I can't spell, I can't copy. Uh, I did spelling words with the girls last week. And I wrote them all out for them. And I said, now write these down so many times out beside that. Jennifer got it the next day and said, what in the world? You need to learn to spell. I was, I, hey, I wrote it straight off the paper. Not really. I tried to. I wrote it right off the teacher's paper and didn't get it right. There are sometimes those, okay? That's not what's going on here. 
Just keep your, keep your marker right there. Look back as to what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm in verse 26 of chapter 2 of Mark. And he went into the house of God. Jesus said he did. In the days of Abathar, the high priest. That's not what this account says. Anybody got answers? Abithar or Abimelech? Same family line. We, what, it, what it apparently happened, and, and this is seemingly what was happening, Abithar was the priest's, I'm putting a on the end of that, family, the period upon which they were living when this, account, this occurrence happened. When they go into the actual tabernacle here, David does, I should say, to speak, he speaks to Abimelech. Now, let me see if I got the references jotted down. I'm not sure that I did, and I should have. Um, but basically speaking, this is a, could be, and there are a couple of different Abimelechs, okay, so we've got to be careful with this. But basically, Abimelech was the father, and then Abath, uh, I'm sorry, Abithar was the father, and Abimelech was the son. Jesus specifically did not say exactly who they talked to. However, he said it was, and I've tried to underline this and circle it, it was in the days of Abithar, the high priest. So there's not a contradiction here. There's just a way of these people being mentioned. As a matter of fact, when you go through the context, this Abimelech, that is mentioned this time twice in verse 1, also in verse 2, a couple of times going forward, particularly in verse 8 as we start to close this out. He was there, and he's the one that spoke to David. Now, David asked that question. We just read it in verse 3. Uh, I'm, yeah, in verse 3. He said, Now, therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is that is present. And the priest answered and said, There is no common bread, underline that, there is no common bread under mine hand, but that which is hollowed, underline that bread, if the young man have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from these three days. Since I came out of the vessels and the young men are holy, and the bread in that matter is common, and yea, though, if I were sanctified in this day in thy vessel. And the priest gave him that hollowed bread, underline it again, for there was no bread there but the show bread. The bread of presence is another way the Jews referred to that in that day. And it was taken from before the Lord, and the hot bread was put out in that day and taken away. Now, a few things that you can notice about this, and I'm flipping in the accounts. I'll try to hold in front of you like this. Jesus said that he went in in the days of Abithar the high priest and they did eat the showbread which was, quote, according to them at least, not lawful to be eaten but for by the priest. Is that true or not? Now this time I do this. Jesus stating fact now. This hollowed bread was not necessarily lawful, generally speaking, lawful for these men to eat who was supposed to eat it. The priest, ultimately. Now, some interesting facts about this bread. 
This bread, according to historical accounts of it and different details that you do find, Jesus, uh, not Jesus, God is always specific. When it came to his worship, that which surrounded the tabernacle, that which surrounded the dress, or the, we might call it the, the, the uniforms, if you will, that the priests wore, every aspect of this Old Testament tabernacle slash temple worship that was committed to, God had been very specific about that. For example, how many loaves of bread were available there? I can't do it on my hands. We've been counting math too. Twelve breads. It was supposed to be a loaf of bread for each or representative of each of the twelve tribes. These loaves of bread were approximated to weigh somewhere in the neighborhood of six pounds. Okay, so they're large. This is not, you know, this is not... Uh, you just name your brand, whatever that is. Little, not Little Debbie, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's not a small loaf. It's definitely not the five loaves and two small fish that Jesus would commit to feeding 5,000 with. These are larger loaves. But David comes forth and he asks for what? He asks for five. Now, I'm not saying that because he asked for lesser rather than greater that that ultimately released this to them or anything like that. I'm saying that David didn't come in there and say, look, I need all, I need that. I need these 12 loaves of bread. I need them now. What was Abimelech told David was doing? David was not specific, but what did he tell him he was doing? He said, I'm on a mission for the king. Now, who should have been king by this point? Who had been anointed to be king? David had already been anointed to be king, actually. And so there was a lot of reverence already being given to David already in this case. Even though he wasn't the reigning ruling king, Saul was on his way out, David was on his way in. The anointing of David had already taken place. So there was some authority there, there was some respect already there. But David on top of that says, I'm, I'm on a mission for the king. Now, I think Cliff discussed this in detail when he went through 1st and 2nd Samuel. He wasn't necessarily uh, being completely open and honest with that. But they get there and they are hungered. And what the priest ultimately does, and I don't know all the authority. We're going to obviously have to come back to this next week. But what the priest apparently does, he looks over there and says, well, I don't have anything that I can just give you. There's not the common bread that you're probably asking for. I've got the show bread. I'll give you part of that. What the priest does right here is in some senses he takes that consecrated, that hallowed bread that they should have been the only ones to eat and he gives some authority, some permission to David and his men to eat such. That's a terrible place to pause, but a really good place to pause to consider and to think about because what is Jesus going to say in Mark 2 and verse 28? I therefore am the Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning, I'm the priesthood. I've got the ability and some of the authority given that I can be in control over what the Sabbath is, even in, even in the Sabbath of God, but more especially your interpretation of that Sabbath. And we'll talk more about next week, Lord willing, the, some of the reasoning behind why he might have given that and particularly why they needed it. So, any questions or comments? Once Bobby opens that door, the floodgates are gone. All right, thank you for your time.